church. Wow, that's a generous introduction. I'm definitely not one of the best speakers in Malaysia, not even in this church. I know I have been absent from the pulpit for a while. Appreciate those who have reached out to me, wondering if I'm suspended for saying something wrong. <laughs> well, the only thing that happened was that I got married in the month of August. So this is my wife. Uh, I lead a zone of about 150 people. Most of them have not met my wife. So sometimes when I tell them I'm getting married, ah, are you sure? I've never seen her before. One. They're like thinking I'm lying to them. So this is her. Her name is Charmaine. She's one of the most gentle, loving person and probably the only person who can handle me. So she is real, guys. <laughs> but to repay Pastor Tim for giving me a short break, I'm tasked to speak on a topic I absolutely dislike, which is money. And I really dislike it for a few reasons. Number one, it's very sensitive, right? You know about money, see your faces start to tense up. And there's so many voices out there, investment gurus, seminars, and so on. But I think we don't like when preachers preach about money because when you preach about money, you are preaching about everything else. How we view money is how we raise our kids. How we view money is how we spend our time. How we view money is how we approach our job. And the beauty is this. If we allow God to transform our heart and our views towards money, wow, there's a ripple effect that can happen which can transform the other parts of your life. I love what Pastor Stim said last week. He said, this series will not be for everyone. It will not be for those who are looking to make a quick buck. It will not be for those who are trying to outsmart God. I give this much and God will bless me much more. It will be for those who, yes, you're struggling with some money issues. We live in a real world, right? There are money issues. But in your heart of hearts, you desire to follow God. But you find it hard to do. Now, this series is for you. And if you are someone like that, I want to ask you to read this passage together with me as we allow the Lord to start speaking to us. Okay? So let's go. Do not lay out for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamb of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Father, we come today and we open our hearts to understand what you have to say about money. You adjust our heart our sights, and you activate our hand when it comes to money. Thank you, Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
Now, my passage is these two verses here. And at first glance, it's quite straightforward, right? The eye is the lamb of the body. It means when we see something, it affects our behavior, our thinking, our emotions, and so on. And we see a contrast that Jesus was trying to tell his audience. It's eyes healthy, full of light. Eyes bad, full of darkness. So it's healthy eye versus bad eye, okay? Now, when I dug a little bit deeper, I found something quite interesting. The word bad, translated from the Greek poneros, no surprise, it's evil, wicked, and all those things. But the word healthy here is translated from the Greek word haplos. And it carries an element of being single-minded, being focused, being not distracted. So when you put the original meaning side by side, we get this contrast, single-minded versus evil, okay? Now, I don't know, I'm sure all of us have taken English tests, and if the question says, what is the opposite of evil, don't put single-minded, right? Because it won't be the right answer. So in this tension, what is the author trying to tell us? I think it's this. It's when we are single-minded, singularly focused on what God has to say, that makes our eye healthy and good. When we are needlessly distracted by the voices of everything else, it can make our eye bad. And when you think of it, it makes perfect sense. Jesus' audience at that time for hundreds of years have been conquered nonstop by different empires. It's the Babylonians, the Medo-Persians, Greeks, and all those. So when a country is being conquered, new views are being brought in, right? So these people are exposed to these different worldviews and Jesus is tell, telling them, hey guys, to be healthy is to be single-minded. Now we are not being conquered by anyone, but I would argue we are as needlessly as distracted as them. What are we distracted by? It's culture. In seminary, I'm reading about, uh, on this book, and we learn this term called cultural mores. Big word, but it simply means certain norms that are so ingrained into our culture that we naturally and automatically think it's morally right. And we stop asking questions about it. An example would be, I got this story from an American teacher who's teaching in Indonesia. So he was running his first multiple choice question test. And to bring some of you back down memory lane, your UPSR, SPM, or whatever you call it, we have a question sheet and we have an answer sheet like that, right? So we would fill in A, B, C, D, and all those things. Now the thing about MCQ tests, all the students who don't study, they love it. Because even you don't study, at least you can fill in something, right? 25% chance of getting it right. 
And some of us boost those chants. We write A, B, C, D on the rubber. We flip it. And when we pray to God, oh, give me the right answer. We study the distribution. Wow, five A's already. The next one cannot be A. And we eliminate, right? A, B, C, D, B and C doesn't make sense. I'll, I'll pick between A and D. And we do all those things. But all of us will agree, we will surely fill something in. Am I right? So Randy was conducting this test. And to his surprise, every single test paper that he received had empty answers. And he was puzzled. He was like, wow, my students are so lazy. They don't even want to guess. And he went to approach one of the students. He said, hey, bro, do you know you can actually guess? 25% you know. And the student said this, I know. I was afraid I guessed it right. I didn't know the answer, so I shouldn't get it right. Now, most of us, I want to say that we are all honest people, right? But have we ever thought like that before? Why? Because of cultural norms. When it comes to money, are there certain cultural norms that are so ingrained into us that we have stopped questioning whether it's right or wrong? For some of us, it could be saving, frugality. For some of us, it's compounding interest. Everything we do is surrounding that. For some of us, it's expectations of the family. At certain age, we need to own certain things. And we elevate these things to the status of God's authoritative word. Now, there's no problem with that. But when we elevate it to a place that it shouldn't be, that's when we are needlessly distracted, right? What else can we be distracted? Capitalism. Now, across the history, there are six cultures that sociologists would consider as universalist cultures. Now, what does it mean? It means these people believe that these cultures they own universal truth and they sought out to convert the whole world to believe in the same thing. So you have ancient Rome, ancient Greece, medieval Christianity, Islam, you have the modernity, post-modernity, science and all those things. And the last one, it's the most prominent in our world today, it's capitalism. Capitalism is a system that highlights the ownership of the individual. It simply means you and I, we can own things. Money, possessions, phones, cars, properties, you name it. Again, nothing wrong with that. We know that capitalism has brought progress, innovation. But it also has a side effect where it creates a posture of accumulation in every one of us. Because we can now own things, now we want to own more and more. And this is not a slight on those who have a lot. Please don't get me wrong. What I'm saying is, if our posture is accumulation, and we don't even realize it, we look up to those who own the most, these are models of society, it can cause us to be needlessly distracted and stop us from living the way God wants us to live. An example would be generosity. is directly in conflict to accumulation, right? One is I'm giving something away. One is I want to have more and more. What else can we be distracted? Comparison. Now, I've struggled with this a lot in my life. 
uh, one good example would be in my college days, maybe 12 years ago, a lot of my friends, uh, how do I say this? Wealthy second generation kids, okay? And I'm not one of them. So they have a lot of pocket money, they wear all these branded clothes, and almost all of them wear these polo tees with a large branded logo at the side. So it's your Ralph Lauren, Armani Exchange, Gucci, and all those things. Now, I'm not from a rich family, and I don't have this amount of pocket money. These clothes would easily cost 500 and above, and I, I remember my pocket money is about 800, so no way I can afford these shirts. So I would go to school, I would work as a research assistant so that I can simply buy these clothes just to fit in. I remember my dad giving me this house deposit and I took some of it to buy these clothes. So I hope my dad's not listening. But you get my point. You may not be about clothes, but I'm sure all of us have incidents where comparison messes with our mind, right? So culture, capitalism, comparison, and we put all these things together. Here's how we define our problems of today. Weak economy. Wow, our currency is falling. Political instability. Inability to meet daily needs. There's things that I want and I need and I cannot afford it. Need for financial freedom. I have about 10 to 15 groups, life groups. Every single one of those groups, when I meet them and I ask them, what is the kind of life that they want five, 10 years from now, without fail, this term comes up, financial freedom. I want to do whatever I want. I want to buy whatever I buy. Last one, need for status and recognition. When I own certain things, it, people look at me a different way and I want that recognition. So if these are our problems, these are solutions. Weak economy, let's migrate. Singapore, Australia, blah, blah. Inability to meet daily needs. We need better jobs and better income. Need for financial freedom. It's all these various investments that we need to get into, crypto, stock market. Need for status and recognition. I need certain bags when I go to work so my colleagues will look at me a different way. I need to drive a certain car. And I'm not saying all these are bad, but my big question that I wanna ask us today, are these the real problems? Or are these just symptoms of a deeper problem. See, when you get some rashes all over your body, the wise thing to do is not to take some aloe vera gel and just put on your, your body, right? It's to find a doctor and ask what is the root cause. So these things, I wanna propose to us that these are just symptoms and there is a real problem. And we want to hopefully answer this question, what is the real problem? Now, fortunately, we are not the first people who have wrestled with this. And I want to turn to a very familiar passage, uh, the parable of the prodigal son. Ah, some of you are wondering, what has this got to do with money? 
So it's not very direct, so please follow along with me, okay? And hopefully we'll get to the root of it. Let's jump into it. He said, there was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. Now, to appreciate this passage, we've got to have a little bit of understanding on Israelite society. When we see this passage, sometimes we think, oh, it's a family of three. It's a father, two sons, they live in a semi and he's asking for maybe half of uh, his wealth. That couldn't be further than the truth. Now, the Israelite society, it's a tribal society. The smallest unit of the Israelite society is called a bataf. It's a clan where there's the eldest member of the family, the patriarch, there's extended family, there's multiple generations, and the bataf could easily include up to 30 people. When the patriarch passes on, the eldest son inherits the title, and hence, he's given two-thirds of the family inheritance, okay? So in our context, the first son, he owns two-thirds. The second son owns one-third. Now in those days, their wealth is not like us. It's not in stocks, bonds, or liquid assets. It was farms, land, livestock, and these were their livelihood. They shared these among all the 30 people in the Bataf. So when the second son is asking for one-third, it's one-third of the land, one-third of the livestock, and it would be devastating to the livelihood of the entire clan. Now, there's one thing about all these assets. We know that it's not very liquid. In those days, they don't have transparent markets like us. So how much does a chicken cost? How much does a cow or a land cost? We don't have these markets. So it would usually take a process of negotiation which can go up to, to months. Scripture specifically says here, not many days later. It means because of the pressure of the second son, the family had to do a fire desperate sale and with that, you won't get a good price. All these signs indicate that the second son had no care whatsoever of the livelihood and the well-being of his clan. So he took the stuff, the money, and he squandered his property in reckless living. Now, I won't go through too much. You know the story. Things didn't go too well for the son, but I want to point this out. What's the first thing that he did? It's not to go back. He went and hired himself. He went to look for a job. What else did he do? It says here, no one gave him anything. He went to back. Now, why did he do that instead of going back straight away? 
he did not want to be at the mercy of his dad and his brother. And in those cultures, when a Jewish boy squanders his inheritance to a Gentile party, a ceremony called the Kazaza was enacted. They'll take a large pot and smash it in the front of the individual. Let's say I'm the one who squandered, and they will start chanting, Eugene is cut off from the family. Eugene is cut off from his people. And they would have nothing to do with that individual after that. So the son knew it. and says, I'm going to do everything else on my own first. So he looked for a job. He backed. And here's what he did next. Scripture says here, when he came to himself, some Arabic translations translate it as he got smart. He said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. Now at first glance, we think he's repenting, right? The original audience that Jesus was speaking to wouldn't have thought that way. The same language was used by Pharaoh during the time of the 10 plagues. And Pharaoh was saying it not to repent, but to manipulate Moses so he could get his way. When the son was planning his speech, he wasn't repenting. He was thinking, how can I manipulate my father? And he says, I'm going to act humble. I'm going to say, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. He has no intention of reconciling the relationship. He has no intention of becoming a son. He wants to become a servant. In other words, he's saying, I'm in a mess, but I don't want your grace. I'm going to earn my own money and my way back into the community. So he prepares his speech and he goes along his way. And he says here, when he's on a long way off, the father sees him. Now the father knows the consequence if the son comes back. And he says to himself, I have to be the first person to meet him. And he wakes at the place when he could see him from far away. Once he sees him, he rushes out, he overwhelms him with hugs and kisses. And the son starts his speech. Says, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. See the comparison between the planned speech and the actual speech. What is missed out? The son starts the speech. Halfway through, for the first time, he feels the love of the father and he couldn't get himself to continue. At that point, he stops trying to manipulate and he surrenders himself in front of the Father. He stops bringing up his own solutions and he leaves it for the Father to decide his fate. The Father calls out to the servant, puts on the best robe, the ring, shoes, he did not have to earn his way back, 
he was reinstated as a son. The son thought that the problem was that he lost the money. The problem is that he broke his father's heart. The issue is not financial, it is relational. And you're thinking now, great story. What has this got to do with our topic? My proposal is this. The root of our money problems is a relational problem. And before you start debating and start spamming the Slido to disagree with me, let me explain it a little bit more. I'll bring you back to Genesis. When Adam and Eve committed the sin, relational separation happened, right? They were in communion with God. Now they were separated. And this was the consequence that God said to Adam, you shall not eat of Curse is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you and you shall eat the plants of the field. Now it's painting a picture of a challenging adversarial world that man has to live in. And it says here, by the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread. This is an ancient Near East idiom which implies you are so anxious until sweat comes out from your face. And you put this together, it's saying humanity, because of the relational separation, has to live in an adversarial world where there's the thought of having, not having enough constantly at the tip of our mind. Will there be enough crops? Will, there, will rain come? Will I get a job? What if my business is disrupted? There's a constant thought that our labor will not meet our needs. And the first thing we do is just like the second son. We try to find our own solutions. We work harder, we migrate, we look for better jobs, we do investments. And those are great, please don't get me wrong. All I'm saying is, do these solutions solve the root problem? Don't we know people who are living in the best countries yet still depressed? Don't we know people who are very wealthy, a lot of investments, but cannot sleep at night? Can these solutions solve our problem? If our root is relational separation, the only solution is relational reconciliation. And today, we're going to spend some time doing communion. And I think there's no better time because it's our Lord, the work of our Lord Jesus Christ that allows this relational reconciliation. Now, you know the rest of the prodigal son story. There's another brother, right? Older brother. What is he doing? When the younger brother is being reinstated, they were celebrating. He refuses to join the party. Think of it. Remember my chart earlier, two-thirds, one-third. One-third is lost. So if he's reinstated as a son, haha, I get one-third again. Who pays for the one-third? It's not the father. It's the older brother. That's why he's upset. 
my good for nothing brother. I'm the one doing all the hard work, serving with the dad. You squander the wealth, you come back, and now I have to pay the price. Jesus was in the exact same spot as the older brother. He was the good brother. He followed the father. And the difference is this. He did not refuse to participate in the celebration. He was the true elder brother. He partnered with the father to bring all the other brothers and sisters, us, back into relational reconciliation with Him. You know, Jesus died on the cross not to make us rich. I know you hate this, but it's not. It's not to make us comfortable. It's so we can reconcile with the Father. We pray and sometimes, oh God, give us this, give us that. I mean, those are secondary prayers, right? Our primary prayer should be to have a relationship with our Father. Today, as we take the communion, as we take the bread, let us leave all our man-thought solutions at the foot of the cross. I'm not saying give up on it. I'm saying for this moment, let's leave it there first our investment plans, our budgeting, let's leave it there. And we come to the foot of the cross and we say, God, I know it's not a money problem. It's a relational problem. Let's take some time to do that. As we take the cup, let's be like the second son who embraces the grace of the Father. It is then He's reinstated. It is then He's reconciled. As we take the cup, let us embrace His grace. we thank you that you adjusted our sight today. All the problems that were the biggest problems of our life, now we see that there's a real problem. And the best thing, you already provided the solution. Lord, in our needs, in this adversarial world that we are in, we know it will be tough. But we take peace because we are in communion with you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.